0: Hello, and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski, and today I am talking to the gorgeous Jessamy Gleason. Jessamy is talking about her own experience of PTSD as a result of a research project. And we talk together about the process of really looking after yourself and recognizing your vulnerability as a researcher. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Jess. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for getting up early in the morning. (laughs) It's all great. It's my pleasure. (laughs) Um, And also to agree to speak about this because we're going to talk about some difficult stuff um, today and and I know will be really helpful to people. And I really appreciate you um, offering to come and talk about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Not a problem. Happy, happy to be here and happy to talk about it because I think in all honesty, it's really important to talk about this stuff. So that's, that's why I'm here.
0: So we're going to get into talking about PTSD in, in a minute. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, I always ask people to talk about their own journey uh, through the um, PhD and out the other side. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey. Of course. So, I
1: um, I studied in Melbourne, in Australia, and I studied at Swinburne University of Technology for my PhD. And I started that in 2012. And it was on feminism, feminist activism and representations of women in the mainstream media. And I finished my PhD a few years ago, and then commenced further research. As a result, so the PhD journey itself was probably about as difficult as your standard PhD was, <laughs> um, which is to say that it encompasses all those wonderful and um, slightly difficult experiences of supervisors and confirmations and um, editing and all of that. But it was it was the what came next for me. Mm. But in and the PTSD that we'll get to, which yes. in fairness I have read and published about, can also happen during. The PhD yes. journey. So uh, the PhD experience itself was on, um, yeah, feminism, gender studies. <laughs> Love
0: that. Love that. Um- and I love that you said standards difficulties. Oh, I know. <laughs> because-
1: it's so, uh, no one talks about it. I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday. Well, I guess this is the point of this that we do yeah. talk about it, but yeah. it's the amount of people who experience challenges with um, mental health or just all around difficult PhD experiences. And it's seen as acceptable is something that, mm. uh, you know, I'd really like to help destigmatize, but mm. also just how hard it is and how challenging it is seems to be accepted by so many.
0: Yes, absolutely. And that is why we're here to talk Mm. about it. And I think also what feels really important to me is a lot of people feel like it's just them Mm. and then kind of take that on themselves, that there's something wrong with them. And actually there's systems out there that are (laughs) problematic. There's there's, there's all sorts Mm -hmm. of things that we kind of need to call out. And I, I love that you're you're on the you're on the crew I love it. Yeah. Um, Look, it's, it's it's not you it's the academy exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly yeah. that. Exactly that. Um so let's let's get into this then. Mm. So you have been um researching in the area of of PTSD. So first of all, I think most people are going to know this, but just to kind of remind us refresh us on on what PTSD is and then and then to perhaps talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. so PTSD um, is a very specific term that it, relates to exposure to trauma or traumatic material. There is a very specific definition that it fits within that you can access if you look at what we often know now as the DSM-5, so the diagnostic mm-hmm. um, manual that a lot of clinicians use. Mm-hmm. And it's it's either being directly exposed to very serious um, incidents of trauma or being more indirectly exposed to aversive details of a traumatic event. And that usually covers people, that second category usually covers people like first responders, police officers, um, so on and so forth. But it can also cover people who are researching these things. And that's Mm. a um, Mm. definition that has been broadened out in recent years. Mm. And when I um, say, you know, I've been researching PTSD, in fairness, it's a fairly um, uh, academic way of just saying I've written about my own experience of PTSD because um, the research has been limited to myself up until now. So, it's an autoethnographic account of PTSD, but um, it is as a result of me being formally diagnosed with PTSD as a consequence of my research. And um, look, thank you for asking what that definition is because there are so many other terms out there that we um, academics love a good set of terms or definitions oh, we and, do. and there's so many when it comes to this field so we have so many other terms that exist alongside PTSD vicarious trauma compassion fatigue burnout secondary traumatic st- stress those are all terms that people are going to encounter in the literature mm. to you know be applied to basically what is the same thing the reason that I say PTSD is because that's what I was formally diagnosed with um, clinically by a psychologist as a consequence of my experience. That doesn't lessen
0: anyone else's experience, but it's just what
1: I used to be academically correct.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And this is why I've said thank you for your generosity in terms of coming to talk um, about this because of your it's your personal connection and investment in this work so oh, tell if, oh sorry
1: no no you go ahead please I was <laughs> going to say
0: te, so tell us a little bit more about your experiences about and about the work that's come out of that
1: yeah of course yeah so I am. I was diagnosed with PTSD as a result of undertaking a very specific research project that was examining aspects of sexual abuse, and um, that happened a number of years ago. The reason I'm not going to, and so to be clear for all your listeners too, Mm. I'm not going to give exact dates or go into the exact, you know, aspects of that Mm. sexual abuse, simply because I um, had to jump through many different hurdles of um, ethics approval and that kind of stuff to get Mm. the piece published, and so of course a lot of things. Are uh, anonymized or um, had information removed. But um, suffice to say that I was attached to a particular research project that was looking at particular aspects of sexual abuse. And um, as a consequence of those experience, that research experience, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, in the piece that I published on this, the autoethnographic piece, I discuss how I undertook a series of um interviews with people who had experienced this um, these particular aspects of sexual abuse and those interviews um, with survivors of these aspects of abuse were what... Um, led me to being exposed to this traumatic material and later um, experiencing all the signs and symptoms that led to the diagnosis of PTSD. So it took um, it took a while from um, from what to go, as they say, from me g- going from that role in research to then um, experiencing PTSD and consequently needing to resign from my role as a um, researcher and taking um, on about. Uh, at least 12 months if not more of formal um, clinical treatment for PTSD so it was quite a long journey to um, Mm -hmm. undertake and I ended up um, happily having that I don't know how they say it in technical clinical terms but I was no longer fitting within the category of PTSD as of about um 18 months or so ago so it takes a while for those experiences to um all those symptoms and signs of PTSD to fade it's it, it's a long journey
0: it is a long journey and I just want to really celebrate you having the support that you needed reaching <laughs> out for the support that you needed um and and kind of coming through that because as you say that is a that's a long haul it to- is yeah, it is. And look,
1: in fairness, the support, I was lucky because my, the, look, the, the support was funded and initiated by me. So, and I guess that's one of the things that we're here to talk about it is yeah. where and how there are holes in um, yes. the academy and yes. in research projects, because that that support on my end was privately funded by myself. So I was the one that was paying out the money for the psychologist. I was the one that needed to resign from my job in order to receive treatment. So it's the um and I, I talk about this in the publication and I'm sure we'll talk about it more here, but the, the university really did not do much at all. Um so that that's one of the things that I think is really important to highlight is that a lot of the time we're left a bit high and dry when it can come to these things.
0: Mm. And that is and that's kind of the nub of what we wanted to talk about here we we talk generally about the difficulties of the phd but there can be some really particular if you are dealing in with particular material if you are exposed to particular situations they can have real severe psychological consequences to the to to what's going on in that in that project um and of course that's what you experienced mm. so tell us a bit about your learning from that and your your kind of what you yeah what you would like to share having come out of that and come out of the other side of that
1: yeah absolutely so there are I mean there are a lot of different learnings but I'll try and be um succinct for the sake mm. that we're not here for two hours um mm. even mm. though academics love to hear their own voice so mm. bear with me the um the university system, as a whole is not usually set up well to think about how we look after researchers. Um, if we, if you go through a standard here in Australia, it's called ethics approval and I understand in other places it has some, um, you know, there are other words attached to it, but for here it's called ethics approval and um, as opposed to an institutional review board. When you go through that, you'll get asked typically a lot of questions about what you are doing to protect your participants, to protect the people or, you know, not even the people, but the subjects, again, mm. another word that I don't like, that are involved in the in the research. And you'll get asked, how are you protecting them? What information are you giving them to help themselves after this? What phone numbers are you giving them to call if they experience um, trauma or anything like that? But typically, there's nothing in there about what are you doing to protect yourself? or protect the other members of your research group. And if you are undertaking a PhD or if you are on a fixed term or casual contract, you are particularly vulnerable if you do experience um, trauma to how you actually are looked after. That's not to say that academics in ongoing roles are not any more or less um, liable to experience trauma, but simply that they have the ability to take sick leave they have the ability to access more of the employee um, access program, the EAP. They have the full weight of the university to be able to um, access if they need, whereas fixed-term casual or PhD students have these threats hanging over their head of, if I take sick leave, I might not have a job when I come back, or I might not get paid, or if I you know, pause my project on the PhD, maybe they'll just get someone else in. So there are very different ways that we experience and negotiate trauma. And that goes right back to the ethics committee. Again, if you are submitting something to the ethics committee as a senior researcher who is, you know, probably the ones doing this stuff, submitting things to the ethics committee or the IRB, then you are going to be the one that is um, in a senior position. You're probably not the PhD candidate a lot of the time. You might not be the um, fixed term or contract person. You may be the lead. And so therefore you're not as aware Of what others might be experiencing or what those vulnerabilities are. So that's the individual sort of responsibility Mm -hmm. on the researcher or the research team. Of course, Mm -hmm. then there is the um, responsibility of the wider university and how ethics committees and IRBs really fail in relying on heads of schools and PhD supervisors and grant holders to make these really subjective decisions about risk. Um, How well you individually might negotiate these things as opposed to what are you obliged to do to protect others, not just your participants, but also. So those on your team, how are you making sure that if they are exposed to trauma, they receive the appropriate levels of care? And how does that go beyond things like um, that throwaway line saying that if you are distressed, you'll go and seek help or whatever else? So, what are you doing that's authentic in that regard? And yes. um, in the piece that I published, I talk about trauma-informed models of care. So, how do we actually start that from the beginning and say, well, you're probably going to experience a level of trauma and you need to accept that. So, what are you actually doing to introduce that trauma-informed model of care into that wider ethics approval process? And um, you don't, you know, I if you told me five or six years ago that I would be suggesting putting more paperwork into an (laughs) ethics
0: review, I'd be horrified because I
1: know I know how tedious it can be, but it's not about the matter of necessarily just about the matter of paperwork and it shouldn't be a box ticking exercise. It's a real opportunity to reflect authentically on the level of risk that you are putting yourself at yourself and others in line of. As a consequence of your research because everyone reacts differently so you can't assume that just because you will be fine with undertaking a particular level
0: of risk that others will be
1: the same or that they know what they're getting into
0: absolutely absolutely and, and we keep referring to this this um uh, publication which there will be a link to that in the show notes so that people are able to um read more because I'm, I'm sure people will be interested to read more on that um this is about duties of care. <laughs>
1: yeah, isn't it? Duties Univers-
0: of care. Yeah. Universities
1: are not always um, good at that, particularly when it comes to researchers and our independence as academics to research what we like. And I know that it's, I think it's a difficult pill for many to swallow to be told, well, you need to be doing this to look after yourself because um, at the same time, it can feel very, uh, paternalistic to be told, well, you need to think about this and whatever else. And the the deep, deep irony of um, this, again, doesn't um, – I don't miss because I, in seeking approval for this um, publication to go out, I encountered again another um, – a separate institutional review board, a separate ethics committee at my current university who were very um, – wonderful and polite and caring about checking that I was okay, but also raised the fair enough question of, are you going to be okay if you publish all this stuff about your experience on PTSD? Which is a question that honestly, I wished... uh, the institutional review board, the ethics committee at the um, previous university I was at, would have considered you know levels of care when I was doing that original research project. So I I've had those interesting experiences of on one end an ethics board getting really up in your business in some ways to be able to say, are you actually okay? And um, me saying, yeah, you know what? I've got a letter from my psychologist that says that I'm fine now. I don't have PTSD anymore, which actually happened. And I'm happy to talk about that. But um, And on the other hand, another ethics um, committee having very much a hands-off approach, which eventually led to the
0: diagnosis of PTSD. Yeah. Mm. And I, th- I think that the words ethics committee (laughs) Mm. will be will be you know provoking responses from from people who are listening i'm sure and i think that i think there's a whole another episode on ethics committees and there is yeah and it's not um
1: it's not ethics committees alone um, and it's um i'm sorry if they've come in for targeting here it's not it's not my intention it is the overall structure because mm. of course uh, committees ethics committees can only do so much it's the overall structure of how we understand research and the institution as a whole and how that is often set out that is um the wider problem and i think ethics committees are just one part of that because at the end of the day there's only so much you know, any one committee or group of people can do. So it's not um their approach alone. That's just one of the ways to address these issues of trauma and um particularly for um vulnerable researchers. So to come back to that original point and how this is important for PhD students, they're particularly vulnerable. And um, I know that feeling because I've had it myself when I was a um PhD student, I had a lot of um experiences nothing traumatic but just odd experiences in trying to locate people Um, I was interviewing a lot of feminist activists at the time and I would meet them in public or I would meet them at a library and it's to to try and avoid going to a stranger's house for Mm. example Mm. and to have that be cognizant of that level of risk and be like, well, what am I going to do? Who, am I going to call my supervisor once I finish the interview? Who am I going to, and how do you how you capture that in the um, ethics process is quite interesting. But the vulnerability of PhD students and fixed term and casual researchers can't be um, stressed enough because they don't have the ability to necessarily take as much sick leave. They don't have the ability to fall back on a lot of the different measures that ongoing staff do. It's um, all of the stuff in the literature that tells us how to protect ourselves from trauma points to things that they just can't do, like take breaks from listening to different stories, spread out the interviews to one every week or one every fortnight, um, reorganise your workload. Um, none of that is really achievable for PhD students. So, and then there's, you get to the power dynamics of debriefing with colleagues. And it's like, do you really want to be sharing with your PhD supervisor or your manager, how you're having nightmares of whatever, and then you have to front up and have another meeting on your PhD the next week?
0: Probably not. (laughs) Mm, mm. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this, this, real sense is kind of looking after yourself on a whole mm. nother level this is not bath and candle time <laughs> This mm. is like serious no, no no structural structural thinking and also thinking about because I think that we all like to think we're invincible and we all like to think that we you know we can go in and do all of this stuff I think what you what's coming through really strongly from what you're saying is a sense of vulnerability, acknowledging that and then thinking about how you can look after yourself within that and how you mm. can enlist um, uh, support. Um, I think pro- professional associations can be really useful in this in terms of um, have, getting guidance from there and thinking about how you can work with that. I wonder if you have any other thoughts on how people can Look after themselves in this. I mean, we're coming to top tip time, so I'm I'm wondering if if that that might be a top tip. But I don't want to put top tip words in your mouth.
1: So it's totally fine. It's totally fine. So yes, being um, being cognizant of your actual limitations. So um, to to spell it out in 10 seconds or less, when I was first diagnosed with PTSD, I thought that I would be able to continue working on the research project. And my psychologist didn't even laugh at me when I said that to her. And so when I had to resign six months later, she also didn't even say, I told you so. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, you're not often aware when you're in that state of trauma what your actual limitations are but the the actual top tip for me would be when you commence a research project it's so much easier to build all of these things into it at the front end rather than trying to scramble behind the scenes when something actually happens so I talk about um in, again, in that publication, how people, researchers need to really plan for trauma in research. So, all of those different things um, undertaking trauma informed practices that really realise the impact of trauma and the fact that it's probably going to happen to some extent, and what you can do about it both in your um, when you proceed through ethics, in your practices, in undertaking research. Um, in that vulnerable space, in debriefing, if that's something you want to go down the path of, and in um, receiving potentially preventative or just as a form of debriefing um, clinical care. So planning for trauma is a lot easier than experiencing it and then going, oh, well, what can we do now that you've already got PTSD?
0: Absolutely. And I love this in terms of the sense of it's not just thinking about what's going to get me through the efforts committee. It is like, really Mm. what is useful to me. And I'm going to plan it's going to, you know, it's like in A&E, isn't it? That they have all those drawers and all those cupboards with all the stuff in just in case Mm. you need it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And hopefully you'll never touch it, but it's there just in case. And I think this is just awesome advice. And I really would recommend people to, to kind of reference your work because It is hard-won knowledge that you have, um, (laughs) and I I just say it's incredibly generous-spirited and and really very wise. So thank you so much, much. Jess. It's been my pleasure (laughs) for all that you've done. I say for for really for 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 sharing your sharing your story, for sharing your work. Um, I know that this will be of use to lots of people. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much. And thank you all for listening.